Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 7th, 2016, and my guest is frequent Econ Talk guest Arnold Kling, economist, author, and his latest book, which is coming out soon, is Specialization and Trade, A Reintroduction to Economics. Arnold, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Now, what's special about specialization trade? Why do you put it at the center of this economics primer that you've written? Well, you could start by saying that uh, Adam Smith, who is considered the founder of economics, started out, of course, talking about specialization. And I think that economists have a bit lost their way by getting away from that in the last 50 years. In, In some ways, the organizing principle of this book is I'm trying to use the focus on specialization and trade to get people away from misconceptions that they hold about economics. And these misconceptions are misconceptions that economists have and that non-economists have. They're misconceptions that socialists have and that libertarians have. So it's really kind of a, a wide collection of misconceptions that you can address if you keep people's minds on the topic of specialization and trade. Well, let's start with uh, macroeconomics, which is a good chunk of the book, though not all of it. Uh, what are some of the misconceptions that you feel are uh, held by economists? And of course, we've infected non-economists with those misconceptions, if they are such. Um, what are they in the macro area that, that come from ignoring the, the importance of specialization and trade? Yeah, I would say these misconceptions have infected economic journalism probably worse than any others. Um, I think, boy, it's hard to know where to start, and I'll probably forget some of them. You should remind me. But one of them is what I call the GDP factory, thinking of the economy as producing just one type of good out of, you know, uh, you know, homogeneous labor, homogeneous capital, as if it were one factory, one business, and thinking that uh, what's happening when uh, there's unemployment, that's caused by the business, not people not buying enough from the business. Now, that makes perfect sense for one business. That is, if, if, if I have a business and people aren't buying much of my product, yeah, I might have to cut back on employment. But that's a, not a good way of thinking of, of an economy as a whole, which is constantly splitting up work and reconfiguring work into what I call new patterns of specialization and trade. So that's one misconception. Well, let's, let's uh, stop. Well, go ahead. Name a few more if you'd like. Uh, another way to think about it is you know, thinking of the economy as some sort of machine that you can operate with a gas pedal, and this gas pedal is spending. Uh, again, there's, it, that's just not the right way to think of the, econo- of the problem of organizing or coordinating economy. It isn't a matter of hitting the gas or uh, operating it with a few simple equations. It's a matter of people readjusting and reconfiguring to new forms of specialization in response to changes in primarily in technology, but also into tastes and to culture and other things. So when you accuse journalists, say, or economists of, of making these mistakes, one of their responses would be, well, of course we know there's not a, one big factory. Of course we know there's lots of different industries and sectors, and it's not just a simply a matter of, of, of putting our foot on the gas pedal. How do you respond to that? Well, the, I think that they would, they would, what they probably would come back with even stronger statements. Yes, we know we have a simple model, but it's a, it's a, at least it, it gives us some – some policy options, I and mean, what are your policy options? And most of what I can come back with is that my policy options would be more microeconomic than macroeconomic, uh, that you kind of have to 
help the economies it solves this coordination problem. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, and, I'm making and, a different claim, and I, and I, by the way, I I have the same challenge you do in my views on macro, which is okay now. Okay, so now what? And we, we'll come to that later. I actually think you have some very interesting things to say. You're very modest about them because they're not as dramatic, perhaps, or as uh, marketable as some of the things that yeah. people on the other side say. But I don't think they're uh, unimportant. But I, I'm making a I'm making the claim here that you're you're creating a straw man. Nobody believes there's a GDP factory. That's silly. That's not what people economists believe. You're just that's a parody. Defend your your claim that that's oh, the way uh, they see the world. Well, um, look at sort of every okay. So so what what macroeconomists and unfortunately what I think economists live by in general is the model. You know that. If you if you've never done professional economics, this might be unfamiliar to you. But uh, people write down a set of equations. They'll say, "Let y be total output. Let l be the total amount of labor. Let k be the stock of capital." And I'm sorry, but when you're doing that, you are in effect reducing the whole economy to a single factory in your model. And um, and. I think economists have lost track of how far that model differs from reality and how important those differences are. It's as if accountants all of a sudden decided that their accounts really were the business. Uh, and it, you know, if you think about it, you know that account, you know, accounting ledgers are not the same as a business. If they were, every business plan would be a successful business, but they're not. If account, accounting were everything, all the famous... Uh, business tycoons from J.D. Rockefeller up to Mark Zuckerberg would be accountants, but they're not. They're, they're, there's a lot more to business than accounting. And similarly, there's the, there's a lot more to the economy than just these simple models. So let me defend the factory model. It's hard for me, but let me let me defend it here for a minute, which is the response, I think, of, of – of people who who you've criticized here would say, okay, no, I understand that. Sure, it's 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 a it's a model. It's to simplify the reality, which is way too complex to model in any precise way. These patterns of specialization and trade that you're talking about can't be modeled very easily, if at all. So they're nice. That's that's lovely, but we've got to make uh, decisions when people are out of work, and we know both from our model and from the data that there is a gas pedal. Uh, there is a way to stimulate spending at the factory or across factories, if if you want me to be more realistic, and that's to spend more. You, you mentioned in passing this focus on spending. That is the dominant argument in in macroeconomics over the last 70 years, which is uh, when things go bad, if things are not um, going well, what we have to do is obviously the reason they're bad is there's not enough spending. And so if the private sector, either investment or consumption, is is inadequate to keep the factories humming along, government has to step in and use what's called fiscal policy to make up the gap. And that's pretty straightforward. You know, my favorite um, moment, one of my favorite moments in macroeconomics in real life was getting to hear Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winner, say in public that it doesn't matter what we spend it on. Government spending is going to help the economy. So is he just wrong? I think so. Uh, they, so, you know, the theoretical argument for that, uh, you know, I think rests very strongly on this sort of misleading model of the GDP factory. And so a fallback position is to try to make an empirical argument, just say, well, the data show that, spending and monetary policy, which is another way to try to increase spending, which the press really tends to misunderstand. They tend to think describe monetary policy as if it were, you know, government spending money, giving you money to spend. Uh but we can, that's just a that's a different misconception. But in any case, the um the data on that are kind of the the beauty of spending as a policy to fix unemployment is entirely in the eye of the beholder. 
I'm, my guess is we've talked before about the challenges of dealing with macroeconomic data, that uh, it's not an experimental science, it's a bunch of observations, and people have the, you know, can statisticians or economists or just, or anybody can interpret that data in whatever framework they like. And unfortunately, it's, you cannot come up with, you know, decisive uh, results that change anyone's mind. Again, that's something you've talked about with other people on the podcast, how, how rare it is for economists to change their mind based on statistical evidence. And I think that when that does happen, when, when statistical influence, evidence is influential, it's almost always in microeconomics and never in macroeconomics. I mean, I, you know, to to my naked eye, and I think to a lot of people's naked eye, uh, fiscal stimulus does nothing. But if you run it through a standard macroeconometric model, like this Congressional Budget Office model, uh, it works. But it works because it works. It, or it works because it works in the model. It doesn't. The model, the data aren't really telling the model anything. The model are are insisting on on its interpretation of the data. Well, I just want to comment on that in a way I haven't always uh, put it that I think might be of, of interest to listeners and maybe to you, Arnold, which is I was talking to my dad the other day and we're talking about the increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And he said, well, that's just going to kill jobs. And I said, well, a lot of people don't think so. He said, well, how can they believe that? And I said, well, they believe that the data say that the jobs aren't lost. And he said, well, can't they just go out and count them? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a really plausible, seeming, seemingly reasonable thing, right? Which is, well, let's just see what happened or see what will happen and keep an eye on it. And similarly, when we spend $800 billion on so-called fiscal stimulus, well, let's just see if it created any jobs. Let's see if jobs went up. And, of course, the reality uh, – and that's I think is you – know, when I think of all the different ways that I find – econometrics depressing and and data and economics depressing this is maybe one of the most important ones which is there's so little accountability if you can't count them but you can't and the reason you can't well, well, didn't garrett jones try to do something sort of like that yeah um, th- you might have even had him on to talk about I'm that i'm not paper. sure we talked about that well we may have actually i'll go back and look but but the it was a long time ago so many uh economic you can't talk episodes under the. Under it, the would have, it would have been about 2010. Yeah, correct. Even, maybe even earlier. But yeah. of course, the challenge there is that it, it's like asking how many jobs um, are lost or gained by a trade agreement. We just see how many factories were closed or moved to Mexico. But of course, that doesn't count the jobs that were created elsewhere in the economy. Uh, and even David Otter in a recent conversation about China, who tried to measure very carefully. Again, not counting, but using statistical techniques, trying to isolate the impact of Chinese trade and trying to hold constant all the other stuff going on in the economy, and concedes that he did not was not is not able in that framework to measure jobs that might have been created by the fact that we are spending we get goods more cheaply from China. So it's um, it's really important, I think, to think of this as. Uh, it's not an easy argument to settle. You can't just look and say, well, well let's just see what happened. Let's, you know, yeah. the, the whole statistical analysis is attempting to isolate the one effect of this one variable. And I like the way you said, you say we only have one economy. Uh, and that really limits our ability to do experiments. And, uh, and, and as I said, you know, with the naked eye, it looks like when we were sort of hitting the gas pedal the hardest with stimulus, uh, employment was performing poorly. And then when we switched to austerity, and some people even said that's going to be horrible, or what they called austerity, that is, you know, easing up on the gas pedal, the economy picked up and employment especially picked up. So. Uh, you know, to the naked eye, it looks like the, the gas pedal doesn't is, is meaningless. And to me, the naked eye is at least as valid a way of looking at the data as torturing it through a model. Well, they're all complicated because you, you don't know what would have happened otherwise, whether we would have added even more jobs if we hadn't, if we had gotten back to the gas pedal. And, you know, my, my problem is I, 
I don't know how to assess that. So I tend to fall back on my own model. So I'm, I'm going to confess that I have my own problems, which is I have a, a a framework as you do for looking at the world that's got all kinds of other challenges. It's true. I don't have the ugliness of some of the empirical claims that some people make that are overstated in my opinion, but I don't really have a, a an ironclad way to make my case either. So I, I, you know, I usually come back to some level of humility when I'm done. Yeah, that's certainly appropriate. Let me um, let me tell you what I like about the specialization in trade idea in, in the macro setting, and then what I think is is less convincing, and you can respond to it. I think in the aftermath of the recession of two thousand and eight, the fact that there were thousands and thousands of construction workers and manufacturing workers who were put out of work by a combination of, say, increased trade with China, increased technology, a, a slump in housing starts. Uh, all those folks had to find new jobs. And I think focusing on what the, is going on at the micro level for them to be able to find those new jobs is very powerful. What I find less powerful is why the problem started in the first place. It's Although technology can disrupt the patterns of specialization and trade, it seems to me that other things that you're not as fond of, such as monetary policy, uh, perhaps other rules of the game that the government Im- imposes, those can have effects that are outside the specialization in trade. So for me, it seems like an asymm- a little bit of an asymmetric uh, world that you're, that you're selling, which is there are a lot of reasons why economies might stumble – uh, going forward, but when they have to recover, they have to be looking at these kind of of issues that you focus on. What do you think of that summary? Um, I, I'm not sure which what criticism you're making. So you, you uh, want to so, rework phrase it? But you understand the praise. Yeah, good. So, <laughs> so the, the criticism part is, you know, there's two parts of the business cycle. There's the the bust and then the recovery. I understand the recovery part. I think it's really useful to think about people having to reestablish uh, creating value in their work life. They have to find an opportunity that where their um, the value they create is higher than the amount they take from the business and pay compensation. So I think the speed of recovery is very much affected by the challenge of having to find new patterns of, of specialization and trade. I don't see that story being as effective in explaining why the patterns fall apart to start with, white workers get laid off. And there, I I'm, I don't want to go back to the GDP factory, but I'm probably doing it implicitly in some fashion when I think about fiscal mistakes or monetary mistakes. Okay, yeah, I, 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 don't, I want to lean away from thinking in terms of fiscal or monetary mistakes. One thing that I, I, I'm willing to grant a lot of potential to is financial disruption. And let me just make a side. I'm sure I'm going to refer to this at some point. This may not be the most appropriate point, but uh, you know, Asimoglu and others have a working paper on sort of what they call network effects in the economy, and they find that um, you know, sort of when one industry has problems, other related industries have problems. Not not a big surprise. So um, you know, sometimes. Uh, you know, an industry that that has a lot of suppliers. When the when that industry is affected, its suppliers are affected. And uh, uh, you know, and sometimes when the, when there's a supply problem in one industry, that affects the you know the industry that depend on that industry to supply it. And it, gee, not shocking stuff. But it was nice to see somebody looking at these inter- industry patterns. So in any case, I think the financial industry is in some ways in the in the middle of a lot of these network effects, just naturally, because um, you know all patterns of specialization and trade that are uh, complex involve financing. If you just think of you know the the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker tra- trading with one another, you know. Through the intermediation of money, or just think of a, um, you know, we know that a, a surgeon shouldn't mow her own lawn. Uh, she should, in effect, trade surgery, you know, a, a few minutes of surgery for, uh, you know, a few months of lawn mowing service. But she, can, she doesn't do that by barter. She does that, does that through intermediation. And also, 
when people create patterns of specialization and trade that involve you know multiple steps in production so you uh, you know you you get the shovel you get the 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 plow to uh, you know sorry get a tractor to, to mow the field and then you uh, plant the seed and so on well you're going to need to finance these sort of multi-stage production process so bottom line is the financial industry is kind of at the center of a lot of these networks and so you could imagine big disruptions in the financial industry reverberating into big disruptions in other patterns of specialization and trade. So that might be one story of why busts get in the boom and bust cycle, why the busts get kind of clumped together is that if you get a sort of a sudden collapse in in a central industry like finance, or maybe in the seventies, you know, oil production was such a central industry. Uh, but it's, but again, finance can be a central industry, and if there's some collapse there, you can imagine that it takes quite a while for adjustments to reverberate throughout the economy. Well, you're not very fond of, of monetary policy as a, an example of what might cause it, and yet your story there does open the door to uh, monetary disruption, whether they come from the central bank or changes in velocity in private sector response to interest rates, et cetera, they're basically because money is is the intermediate is the intermediate way that we avoid barter and interact with each other and specialize allowing specialization, uh, it does raise the possibility that changes in that in that variable could have economy wide effects. Yeah, two issues with that. First of all, I don't like the mechanical, you know, you know, a, a, an X percent change in the money supply will cause a Y percent change in other variable. I don't, I don't like that. And the other issue I have is I think people have a uh, natural desire to kind of stabilize um, and adapt. To, to sort of conditions involving money. So I think prices tend to be much more stable than you would think if you thought that there were these sort of automatic sort of responses to the money supply. Uh, I, I, I have this phrase that money and prices are a consensual hallucination. That is, it's, it's more of a social convention that, okay, well, you know, this was the price yesterday, that's what we expect it to, to be tomorrow. You know, we have some general expectation of where prices are going to be, and we couldn't operate without that. You know, if you're going to uh, buy some equipment and hire some workers, uh, knowing that what you produce might not appear for another year or two, you have to have some notion of what general prices are going to be a couple years from now. And so I think those are fairly stable. And I also think that what people use as money uh, to transact with is very adaptable. So I, I'm inclined to, and this is this makes me a real outlier in the profession. I'm inclined to uh, minimize the role of government's money supply in affecting how people deal with the problems of using money and credit and specialization and trade. I think of the Fed as just one bank above among many. Uh, it, it's a pretty big bank, especially now. Uh, it, it does a lot. But in the grand scheme of things, I think people are adapting their uses of money and credit uh, and can, in, in some sense, offset a lot of the things that the Fed does on a month-to-month basis. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't have much to say about that other than that I think that's a very it is a very outside the box view. I don't understand how you maintain that view in the face of the evidence. And in particular, I'm just going to take one example and then we can move on, but the it's a micro example. I don't I like the idea that there's social conventions, there's cultural impacts on how we look at prices and and, and money. But I mean, look at the price of oil over the last 6 months. It's fallen from about $4 to $2 at the pump. It's a huge change. It changes almost every – for a while, it's changing every day. And we uh, we all rolled with those punches. The suppliers rolled with those punches. The retailers 
roll with those punches. And I apologize. I, pro- I probably have the timing wrong and the amounts, but right, that's okay. That- but but the basic point is that uh, there's been an enormous change in the supply of energy, and that's had a real impact on price. And it nobody just persisted in charging the same price every day. Supply and demand is very powerful. So I don't understand your skepticism about uh, those kind of market forces, or maybe I'm misreading you. No, yeah, I I think that it's good to ask that because it lets me clarify. No, relative prices change all the time. And, you know, they change secularly. They change with, you know, as things move. But I I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that sort of this sort of General inflation rate is something that the government can fine tune. Um, you know, I, I think you know something like the price of oil changing in response to market forces. Yeah, absolutely. But that happens against a background in which, I mean, you know, if the price of oil moved by two dollars, but we had no idea what that meant because we didn't know whether other prices were remaining stable or doubling or going up or down by fifteen percent. Then, then our, the whole world would be very noisy. The reason that the price of oil is, is meaningful and we understand the impact of it is that we have a sense that at the moment most other prices are roughly stable, and I think people need that and 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 naturally gravitate toward that. Yeah, I, um, I, you know, I mean, and it might it might not be literally stable. I mean, you you know, we you could have a period where people just expect prices. Eh, they'll go up about three or four percent a year on average. Some will go up more. Some will go up less. But I'm just saying that people get used to an environment of of prices, and they expect it to persist for a fair amount of time. And if it didn't persist, that would produce a lot of noise and difficulty. Um, you know, that kind of happened in the '70s. The '70s, I think, is a much more tough, tougher experience, um, empirical example for me to deal with because there was a case where, you know, inflation clearly went up, clearly had an impact, and clearly went down, and my story of prices being a social convention doesn't have a a, uh, a ready explanation for that. Yeah, and you talk about that in the book. Um, so let's move on to political economy. Uh, I love, I'm going to read a quote from the book, which I really love. Uh, it kind of captures, I thought, your uh, general, one of your sort of tenets of um, the way you think of both politics and economics. Here's the, here's the quote. Uh, As outsiders, economists see some of the conditions in a market, but they omit other factors. In that regard, economists are no different from other outsiders. To the extent there are outsiders who see a flaw in how the market serves consumers, those outsiders have the option of starting a business to address the problem. That's what entrepreneurs do all the time, and they are the main engine of economic progress. However, entrepreneurs are often mistaken, and new businesses often fail. By the same token, economists and policymakers are also capable of making errors. What we should be comparing is not the existing market configuration with an ideal based on a simple model, but the market process of error correction with the political process of error correction. Uh, close quote. And somewhere along else, you, you talk about how that that process of error correction in the political world isn't so uh, viable. So expand on that if you'd like. Um, well, okay, yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot there. Um, so my point is, first of all, don't compare sort of theoretical outcomes, you know, the, the, in particular the nirvana fallacy of, well, you know, we could have this ideal outcome um, with, uh, you know, with, with what you see as a flaw in a given outcome, but compare processes for uh, for improving outcomes, and that's, and if you do compare the process, you get the, uh, you know, I argue that the market has a better trial and error process. Um, I think, the, you know, maybe a, a, a something that would be useful would be examples. Um, just, you know, if you think of the problem of sort of, let you know, go back to the classic market for lemons problem. Supposedly, you know, I don't have information as a used car buyer about the quality of the used car. And if you have a good used car, you have no way of distinguishing that you have a good used car uh, from a bad used car. What's going to happen? There's going to be a market failure. And, you know, what we've seen is all sorts of 
market efforts to uh, to, to solve that problem. We have companies that track uh, sort of what's happened to cars over time, uh, whether they've been in accidents or not. We have companies like CarMax that, you know, select good used cars and offer guarantees. So, that, that, so all sorts of solutions come up. But when economists look at these problems, they act as if well, I've discovered this problem that the only solution is for government to, ju- to jump in and do something. And their government solution might or may not be as good as what the market would come up with. And if it's not as good as what the market will come up with, it's going to persist anyway. So do you think it is um, inappropriate for economists to even suggest what the optimal, so-called optimal outcome is in those kind of settings and the policies that – could in theory get you there? I think it's pretty often misleading. I mean, take, uh, I'll take on uh, one of the leaders of our profession. Greg Mankiw is always talking about a Paguvian tax, you know, the Pagu Club. Uh, we need to tax carbon more. How does he know how much? I mean, what, and, you know, comp- look at, you know, if you look at all the things that the market has been doing to uh, change the mix of, of energy and, um, uh, you know, sort of just, you know, adjust what, what we do and compare that to coming up with an exact number for a Puguvian tax, you know, I, the, the, certainly the possibilities for error are there. And, um, you know, for, and, and just as one other point, it, it always seems one directional. I mean, how, how would you know if your tax on carbon had ever gotten to be too high? You know, you just say, I hate carbon, let's tax it more. There's no, uh, there's no way of knowing you know, what the amount is. Well, I think he'd respond, we're going to have to measure the size of the externality caused by uh, carbon emissions leading to global warming, leading to human challenges of health or whatever they are, uh, well-being. And that's – we're going to make – it's, it's up in the ballpark. That's what I think you'd respond. And, and your yeah. suggestion is to, is to do nothing, is just to hope that somehow this enormous externality is going to be solved by private action, that you're, you're just uh, – you're an ostrich. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it, it it's not an argument that I, I think I have sort of, you know, sort of overwhelming uh, logic on my side. And, may, and that may be the t- not the best example for me to pick. But the um, – in any case, there certainly are worse ways than a, than a tax of dealing with it. And you're right, you could – can in principle – uh, try to estimate all these costs and benefits and try to uh, come up with the best ap- approach. But, um, you know, I think, again, you run this through the political process and what are the chances that the political process comes out with the tax that you recommend? Uh, more likely it comes out with all sorts of special exceptions and subsidies and favors, Um so it's sort of when you when you actually go through the sausage grinder, you don't come up with, with anything close to what you like. I realize I'm sort of changing the argument. No, that's there, all right. right. I think that, well, I think that's the I think that's the more interesting argument. I don't think you're. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be easy to measure those externalities. That's that's how I, I respond when when I'm thinking about those issues. It's and we already have a tax on carbon, and we subsidize it in other places. It's really the really hard. I think that one of the hardest things to figure out is. What are we doing to carbon now? Are we encouraging it or discouraging it, given the incredible complexity of regulations, taxes, and uh, subsidies surrounding energy exploration? It's, um, and then on top of that, you have issues like uh, the electric car, which I, you, know, you could use as an example of, of your case where an entrepreneur is solving an, an externality, but it's not obvious an electric car leads to less carbon. It just leads to less carbon coming out of the car. Still have to, right. Right? You still have to yeah. charge the battery, and that is usually carbon-driven, and et cetera, et cetera. But, but on this political issue, which I think is the really interesting issue, 
uh, I have the exact same thought, and then I wonder if I'm just being uh, unfair to my uh, intellectual opponents because, you know, if I say, uh, which I do often, oh, yeah, well, that's nice in theory, but that's not what's going to actually happen. Like you said, the sausage grinder is going to ruin stuff. And does that mean you shouldn't even talk about the good? You should not even propose the, quote, best policy? Well, let me make another point before I get back to that, which is um, which is a point I also make in the book, which is that the it isn't that the political process kind of just makes random errors. I think it actually makes very systematic errors. What it does is it uh, it always seems to work in the direction of subsidizing demand for something and restricting supply for that same thing. So I use in the book the example of of housing and housing finance. How you know if you if you put together all the policies at the federal, state, and local level, for the most part they subsidize demand for owner occupied housing and for or for mortgage financed so called owner occupied housing, <laughs> and they restrict supply. And if you think of the economic theory of public goods and externalities, that's almost never going to be the right policy because the theory of public goods and externalities is usually, well, you produce, we're producing too much of, of a good that has a negative externality like pollution or we're producing too little of a good that has a positive externality like vaccination. And so you either want more of the good that you're producing too little of or less of the good that you're producing too much of. But if you subsidize demand and restrict supply, you don't get more or less necessarily. What you All you get is a higher price. And if you think of that in terms of who benefits, the people who supply the good benefit from the higher price, and the people who demand it uh, don't benefit, although some of them get compensated by the government subsidy. Yeah, they're insulated a little bit from those. They're insulated. Systems. And that get, really gets back to this core issue of specialization in trade because, as, you know, going back to as Adam Smith recognized, when you specialize, um, you have a very strong interest in the market in what you produce. You have a much more diffuse or dilute interest in the in the stuff in which you consume. So the the, the politics are always going to push in this direction of subsidizing demand and restricting supply. That's the way the politicians can please the uh, the people who care most about the the product, the suppliers, and and still kind of appease the, the consumers a bit. Um, and well, so the that is, so, well, the burden's falling on the spread widely diffused across tax yes right and so that um um so that that so that political tendency is is not an accident uh it's a very natural tendency for the political process to evolve in that direction so for economists to uh, I mean, in theory, economists could say, "Oh, we're perfectly pure. We're going to we're going to act only recommend policies that are optimal in our, you know, public goods externality framework." Uh, but to do that, knowing that when the politicians get a hold of it, they're going to distort it and turn it into the subsidized demand restrict supply. Result is, I think, disingenuous or or naive, certainly. But that leaves us. I want to come back to that in a minute. The actually the insight, but I, I just want to think about the, the implications for my behavior as an economist. Does that mean I should never propose policies that I think are good because they're always going to be beaten up by the political system? Should That's I just an interesting. George Stick, I mean, George Stickler said it's a waste of time to try to propose good things or bad things. He used to disagree with Milton Friedman about this. Friedman would say, I think we ought to do X. Stigler would say, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. The, the political process is going to work its way through this problem, responding to political incentives. And our job is to observe that like uh, monkeys you know, in a zoo in a cage. Uh, so isn't that what he's what you're saying? I guess I'm saying that, that the uh, it would, I would have more hope 
if we could change the culture, let's say having more people read this book, haha, um, and listen to, to John the, talk, it's good to yeah, right. We're moving along. Yeah, to to change the culture so that people's uh, have realize first of all they they. Um, they have a better appreciation for the market process because there's a lot of people who sort of market against the market process, as it were, and uh, and even more cynicism that they do have about the political process and that they channel that cynicism uh, hopefully more constructively and effectively than they can channel it now. I, I think people are plenty cynical about the political process, but the political process keeps expanding nonetheless. Well, that's because there's always uh, that voice that says, this, I'm going to do it differently when I get in. Uh, I, always, I always find it you know, amusing when someone says, well, if you were president, what would you do? And I say, well, if I were president and wouldn't be an economist, I'd be a president. I'd be a politician. No, no, but use your <laughs> economist hat. But I won't be wearing it. I've taken it off. That's It's a start for people to accept that. But I, I want to expand on your point because I think it's quite deep, actually. And I, I enjoyed that part of the book. I noticed it, but it didn't stick with me the way it has in this uh, elaboration of it. So two places where it's up, housing is one example. It's very powerful, right? We have all these zoning restrictions and we make it hard to build new new buildings and start new projects. And at the same time, we subsidize demand, uh, which pushes up the price of housing artificially. It doesn't necessarily mean we have more houses. We just have more expensive houses. We could have more, but not as many as we would have if we didn't restrict supply. Uh, but health and education are two obvious examples where the same thing is going on, right? We're subsidizing yeah, demand tremendously uh, through all kinds of artificial ways, third-party payments, et cetera, in the case of health. And then we don't let the number of hospitals or doctors expand much. So strangely enough, it makes doctors really, really comfortable. Uh, and hospitals are very profitable. And so then people say, well, that's, maybe we should do something about that. And they do try sometimes kind of sort of um, a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's even stronger than just sort of, you know, the government not expanding. I mean, the government, uh, in the case of hospitals, they require this certificate of need, you know, so that um, um, – and that that has restricted the supply of hospitals, and of course, you know, all sorts of medical licensing restrictions, and there you know, exist, especially at the state level. Uh, you, you can be licensed to do something in one state, but not in another. Uh, you can, you know, they they pile on the requirements for these for these things, and uh, you know, education accreditation, uh, you know, is controlled by the incumbents in the industry and there's you know hardly been a new accredited college in the last you know few decades um so um you know the you know they really are very active in restricting supply it's not just they're, they're not adding to it they, they're they're active in restricting supply and subsidizing demand and 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 i think it takes you know, two seconds to think about that and see how absurd that is, that, that you're sort of like chasing your tail. And yet, you know, e economists don't point out how absurd that is. They act as if there's there's actual public policy going on when what's going on has nothing to do, nothing remotely to do with any economic theory of externalities or public goods. Yeah, social welfare. Um Let's shift gears. Uh, that was very interesting. I want to shift gears and talk, uh, go back a little bit to the issue of um, reestablishing new patterns of specialization trade because I, I want to make sure we talk about this and it's it's uh, it's a little bit related to this issue of um, of public of political economy and what kind of things we should be emphasizing as economists. Uh, at one point in the book, you talk about how we should stop talking about what's optimal and talk about what kinds of institutions and processes we ought to have? What do you mean by that? Well, I think when when you talk about what's optimal, you're t you're saying that you're you're act. I think you're kind of acting as if the uh, kind of technology and tastes are all given, and let's figure out how to get to some uh, social optimum. Um, and when you're talking about institutional 
quality, you're saying, well, nobody knows what the optimum is and the optimum changes because people make new discoveries and you know, culture changes, tastes change. So what you want are institutional processes that uh, you think, <laughs> you know, help make these, uh, you know, these elements of change uh, work out for the best. So in the area of specialization and recovery from a recession, a part I found very interesting is you talk about the decline in, in mobility in the United States and new business formation, um, the dynamism of the labor market. It's an issue that we talked about recently with David Otter. I talked about recently with David Otter. And you say the following. You say you're talking about the decline in the rate of new business formation and household mobility. You say some of that decline may be due to changes in the structure of the economy. One factor is that the largest secular growth has been in healthcare and education, where it's very difficult to compete against established institutions. Another factor is that the age distribution of the population has shifted upward, which might lead to less flexibility and less risk-taking. Another factor is the rapid decline in the value of physical labor relative to work that requires cognitive skills. Those are all fantastic examples of change. I think a lot of people want to pick their own favorite in there and say, well, that's what's causing this problem. It's really a very complicated and wide-ranging set of changes over the last couple of decades in the United States. And then you say the following, and then I'll shut up and let you talk. The main point here is that better economic outcomes arise when patterns of sustainable specialization and trade are formed. Those patterns do not come about as a result of tinkering undertaken by the Federal Reserve or by deficit spending undertaken by Congress. It requires the creative, decentralized trial and error efforts of thousands of entrepreneurs and millions of individuals seeking the best way to use their talents. Probably the best thing that the government can do to encourage new forms of specialization specialization is to rethink existing policies that restrict competition, discourage innovation, and retard mobility. So I think that's a really a fantastic way to think about these issues. Uh, why don't you expand on that, if you'd like, uh, what you have in mind there? Okay, so what? So things that specifically, um, you know, sort of retard innovation. One is, you know, the uh, restrictions on entry into education, and healthcare. Uh, you know, I think that there there's a tremendous entrepreneurial potential there. There's certainly a lot of entrepreneurs who want to get into education, but most of them wind up trying to serve the government as the client. Similarly, in healthcare, there are a lot of in entrepreneurs who want to get into that, but the most profitable thing to get into are, are things that the government is uh, leading the charge on, like electronic medical records. You know, electronic, med electronic medical records may or may not be the most, you know, cost-effective solution in healthcare, but the government would at least, you know, at the start of the Obama administration was just throwing tons of money at that. So that's so if you wanted to be an entrepreneur in healthcare, that's what you did, and you didn't try to solve any other the any of the other problems in healthcare. Um, so, you know, that's you know that's one example of Im impeding mobility. The uh, the credentialization of many professions, I think, uh, um, you know, that's gone up. From what I think, even the this year's economic report, the president uh, got into that issue that that somehow like five percent of of uh, jobs at the end of World War II required a license, and now it's something like thirty percent. Um, you know that that that's excessive, and that's um, you know, and that impedes mobility. Let me throw out another thing that I, I think impedes mobility is the um, linking health insurance to employment. I think that does a couple of things. One, one is it sort of, it has a tendency to lock people into jobs. Uh, another is, is it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big tax on employment. I think we now tax uh, sort of low wage employment higher than just about any other activity I can think of because of the, the payroll tax being so high uh, and the requirement that em employers provide health insurance. And, you know, that just, that just puts a huge barrier into uh, experimenting with uh, hiring people 
and trying to come up with new ways of using people. I, I, I think if, if I could wave one magic wand today, it would be to reduce payroll taxes and offset that some other way, either higher uh, income taxes or, you know, preferably for me, lower government spending. Well, I'm not sure that would make a difference, um, but I think um, smaller government, which would be a way to get the tax lower, would be the, a, a good way to get there. But that's just my uh, my philosophical view. It is interesting that the market is is looking for ways to get around those inflexibilities in healthcare and in education, the um, technology of MOOCs, the uh, digital revolution in healthcare. The potential to visit doctors online without in virtual ways. These are all happening. Uh, the regulatory framework is not really prepared for it. Uh, it's somewhat similar to what's going on in transportation, right? There's all kinds of innovation going on that are solving but, what I would call government failure, uh, right. ways that have restricted that you're talking about. And, um, but that, that's actually a good example. I mean, look at how rapidly Uber uh, is having an impact on the economy and suppose you tried to do anything comparable in healthcare. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is that the taxi medallion owners were too slow and too politically weak to stop Uber. Um, but in if something places. like that, if something like that showed up in, you know, higher education or medical care, in some sense, it, it probably ha already has shown up, yeah. uh, it gets killed. Well, it's not going to, I wouldn't say it gets killed. I'd say it's, it, you're right, it gets, people fight it back against it. Um, I think it's unclear what's going to happen there. And I think the potential in healthcare is going to be uh, much more dramatic because not only are the restrictions bigger, but also uh, the potential gains are so large that people will uh, fight very hard to get those barriers uh, gotten rid of and destroyed. So I think it could be a could be some serious changes there. Well, we'll see. I mean, the uh, I mean, to me, health insurance as it's structured is just you know on the wrong track. Uh, you know, the uh, it's not really insurance; it's a prepaid health plan. Yeah. And yet, I would say if anything's happened over the last several years, it's been to entrench that further in the name of so-called reform. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm as optimistic that the – I mean, it really will be a battle between the entrepreneurs trying to innovate and the incumbents trying to protect existing rents. And I'm not sure I would bet on the entrepreneurs so heavily in healthcare and education. I wish I could. Well, I agree with you that they're not going to win – in the sense of overturning, allowing more competition within the current framework. But I think there's the potential for technology to destroy the current framework, somewhat akin to Uber, right? So it's not, yeah. not going to be easier to start a medical school. That's not going to change. It's not going to be easy right. to be a doctor without certification, licensing. That's not going to change. What's going to change is it, could, it potentially could be so inexpensive to solve certain healthcare problems uh, via technology i won't need to go through the current system there'll be an alternative so we'll see yeah well that's an optimistic view well, i'm not I hope sure you're i'm right. optimistic I just, but that would be if that could happen it would be i would be optimistic about it uh having a big impact we'll see i want to close with um a metaphor you talk about in the book which uh you and i've talked about privately in our conversations and we talked about it here on econ talk with jim Otteson, uh, uh a little while back which is the camping trip uh, that G.A. Cohen, uh, a socialist, has proposed. Talk about the metaphor of the camping trip and why you don't like it. I, I just I find it very extremely interesting because I think it really captures what people don't like about market forces and what they do like about top-down alternatives. Okay, so um, imagine you were on a camping trip and somebody just said, you know, let's organize this. Uh, as a market economy, you know, we'll, you'll be paid a certain amount for uh, peeling potatoes. You'll be paid a certain amount for setting up the tent. Uh, people would say that's kind of crazy. I mean, you know, here we're friends. It's sort of obvious what we all need to do. Let's just all pitch in and do the camp. And I think that's 
absolutely valid for a camping trip. The, the, the bad move is to say that that camping trip then is a, is a valid metaphor for the economy as a whole because it's not. Um, a couple of things, several things to notice about the camping trip. First of all, the tasks that are needed are relatively simple. Um, there are relative, there are very, there are very few people. You see all the people on the camping trip. There are, you know, there's six or eight or, you know, maybe 10 people on the camping trip. Uh, so you don't have a, have to organize and coordinate lots of people. Uh, but above all, when you go on that camping trip, you take with you stuff that required millions of tasks. Where did the clothing come from? Where did the pots and pans come from? Where did the tent come from? Well, the, all these tasks that had to be coordinated. So you're, you're pretending that, uh, that all those problems of coordination didn't exist when you say that the, uh, you know, that the whole economy can be run like a camping trip. Um, the other thing to think about is that, you know, on a camping trip, the tasks are all approximately equally, you know, difficult or undesirable, and people's talents at them are probably approximately equal. Uh, in the real world, people's talents and inclinations are different, and the um, and the uh, sort of difficulty and pain involved in, or not pain, but uh, discomfort involved in different tasks is different. So, you know, I, I would love to be, you know, let's say a, a professional guitarist in a, you know, in a world where each according to his ability, you know, where sort of we could decide what we want to do, self-organize, spontaneously decide what to do. I'd like to be a, a guitar teacher, let's say. Uh, probably nobody would like to be, you know, a sanitation worker or uh, a chicken farmer or something like that. So how do you, how in a socialist economy do you get people to be chicken farmers or sanitation workers? You know, it's, at, that, at that point, you have to use pretty heavy-handed coercion if you're not going to pay them. We could just take turns like you do on the camping trip, right? You usually rotate in, or in the dorm room that we share, we rotate. I think, you know, the, the example that Cohen gives, which I think is very powerful, is that he says, imagine if one member of the camping trip, having been on the uh, on a similar trip years before, knew about a water source that no one else knew about because they'd never been there. And he proceeds to sell that water, exploiting the other people because he has information they don't have. He has that information solely by virtue of the fact that he was lucky enough to have come there before. He doesn't have to work for it. And I think that captures very uh, powerfully the way a lot of people feel about capitalism. They feel that way about the the luck component. They feel that way about people who are born into situations uh, where they have certain advantages and, and get ahead. Um, is that a is that a relevant point that Cohen makes there? I think it. I think it is a relevant point. I think that you know there's. There is, again, relative to nirvana, a, uh, there is something ugly about capitalism. There, there, there is going to be there are going to be advantages that people have that you can consider to be unfair. Uh, the challenge is to come up with something better, and um, and there you you end up and the and. Especially the challenge is difficult given the complex coordination problem and the lack of information. There, there's just nobody who sits up there in the throne, in the cosmic, you know, throne dispensing cosmic justice. Uh, the, you know, we're just, we're all kind of equally ignorant about a lot of things and we know a lot about a few things. And the question is, how can we coordinate given given the, those limited information sets that everyone has? And I think one of the problems and one of the misconceptions that both non-economists and economists have is they act as if there's going to be somebody out there who has so much information that they can dispense cosmic justice. When and and it's frustrating that. No, nobody's in that position, and when nobody's in that position, what do you do about it? And I think the best 
thing, unfortunately, or for fortunately, is to uh, let the market process work itself out. It's, it's often a, a better solution than to uh, give somebody the power that they would use effectively if they had this overarching knowledge, but then have that confront the reality that their knowledge is just not at all commensurate with their power. That's very well said. I only had one thing on the camping trip that's my uh, – the way I think about it, which is I choose to go on the camping trip with a bunch of friends. I don't go with strangers. I don't go with random people. And if I went with random people, it wouldn't be a, such a very pleasant camping trip. Um, not so much because they wouldn't be – they might be more, more interesting than my circle of friends. But uh, getting those tasks executed and dealing with that – the person who knows about the well far away can be much more difficult if they're not people I care about. And when you care about people, whether it's in a family, which is what the camping trip's really about, it's it's an illusion, to, I think, to talk about it. It's somewhat of an illusion to suggest it could be a wider range of folks, but it's friends or family, either one. We solve those problems all the time because we have information about them and we care about each other. And I think with the camping trip, to me, the, the nirvana part of the camping trip I like the idea of is it would be nice to live in a world where people would be happy to work as sanitation workers and serve other people. Uh, that's not the world we live in. Um, most of us, it's not clear who should be that loving of other people, even if they were that loving, why it should be put on it. Some people, not others. Um, whatever you call the, the negative tasks or the tasks you've, and I, by the way, I assume some sanitation workers find their job satisfying and relatively um, pleasant to think about cleaning up things. Maybe, maybe they, just because I don't find it appealing doesn't mean others don't, but I think that's the essence of your point, which is we're all different. Um, and we differ not just in our skills and not just in our, our, um, in our values, but we differ in how much we care about each other. And that complicates the, the camping trip with 330 million people in all kinds of obvious ways. And that, that's the, um, it's the Hayekian knowledge problem. It's just not solvable. Yeah, and and in, in, in even beyond the knowledge problem, I think what you're alluding to is people don't naturally uh, deal with strangers in friendly, warm, peaceful ways. And just getting them to cooperate at all at a, uh, in an impersonal way through the price system is, is a great thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and lastly, that guy who wants to sell you the water because he's been on the trip before, you don't go camping with him again. He bears you Yeah, gonna, right. I mean, it's true. He has an opportunity to exploit us. If he does, he'll pay a price for it. You could argue it's not big yeah. enough, um, but that's that's yeah. another. Um, right, there's a way to solve that market failure. Somebody will, will sell you a bottle of water to take along next time. You won't, <laughs> they won't have to worry about that guy. That's right. Uh, let's close with a. A psychological issue, and if you don't want to talk about it, just say so. But I find it interesting that you and I uh, share something, which is a something of a repudiation of our graduate school training. So part of this book that you've written is a, a reaction to MIT economics, what you call explicitly MIT economics, where you were trained. And some of my um, evolution as an economist is a reaction to my Chicago training that in a you know in a parody of it markets work perfectly everybody's perfectly rational that's what we should assume that things can be measured well and i've i've revolted against some of that maybe a lot of it and then you seem to revolt it against some of your certainly your macro training at, at mit uh any thoughts on why that's the case for us but not for others most people are very happy with the medicine they swallowed when they were younger what what happened to us um, well, I guess we broadly you, you can come up with three stories, right? That the uh, we well, well, two ob observations. I mean, neither of us has uh, sort of you know currently is is in academic positions. So uh, we're not professors anyway. Yeah. So so put, so so put so put those two things together. One is that the uh, causality runs from not having academic positions to sort of rejecting, you know, to becoming heterodox. Uh, that is sort of the, the sour grapes hypothesis, as it were. Yep. Uh, another hypothesis is it goes the other direction. That is, we just naturally thought differently and therefore uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't didn't find our way into the uh, standard you know, the in the in in crowd. Uh, and the other the third possibility is just correl random correlation. 
I'll just say in my own case, I can remember discomfort really from uh, pretty much from day one at MIT um, that I felt like that my undergraduate education was, uh, there was a lot of critical thinking involved, uh, a lot of different points of view uh, brought out as plausible. And I, I, it, you know, it was really kind of a mathematical brainwashing. And I, was, I remember being conscious of it at the time uh, and, compl- you know, and so many students complaining about the time. Of course, maybe graduate students complain in all sorts of environments. <laughs> but um, I never fully bought into into that into the the hubris of the that you know these mathematical models that we're building are great things and that you know this is this is the way to be an economist and do do economics so I'm so I'm trying to resist the uh, the sour grapes interpretation and go for a little bit that uh, uh, it was. You know, I had an inclination to be heterodox to begin with, and that, and that's that's why things turned out the way they did. And, and uh, in any case, I'm, uh, for me, I'm quite happy for the way things have turned out. I feel like, you know, just to do modeling over and over again uh, would have meant learning very little about the real world. And I feel like I learned much more from other experiences. And, uh, you know, pretty. I'm quite happy with how that turned out. My guest today has been Arnold Klang. Arnold, thanks for being part of EconTalk. All right. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.